0: Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hello, welcome. Oh my gosh, guys, I'm so excited for this episode. We are up to the Eighth Commandment, which is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And what that means is that these next few episodes are going to be all about the truth and the importance of pursuing and living the truth, which is literally one of my favorite topics ever. So I am extremely excited for this episode. Okay, oh, and before we start, I just wanna give a quick shout out to my friend Alish for her indirect help with this episode. I literally just finished a course on the fundamentals of philosophy. Not literally, it was like three days ago. And Ailish taught the course, and a lot of the stuff from that course has ended up in this episode. So thanks, Ailish. Okay, now let's get started. So let's begin with a thought experiment, (laughs) a bit of audience participation. You're welcome. Imagine that someone invented a machine that you could hook yourself up to, and it would be kind of like, you know, Avatar or The Matrix. So you would go into this fake computer simulation world and live your life there. Now, in this simulation, It's been programmed so that there is no suffering and no pain, and you will have absolutely everything and everyone that you could ever want. You'll be perfectly happy. You will literally be living your dream life, okay? And what's more, and this is really crucial, once you have entered the simulation, you will have no idea that it is not real. You will be genuinely convinced that you're living in the real world. And the question is, would you do it? Would you go into this computer simulation or would you stay in the real world with all of its suffering and all of its pain? I love this question. I ask it to people all the time to the point where people are like, Caitlin, seriously, we're trying to have breakfast. Do we have to talk about philosophy at like seven in the morning? And I'm there like, yes, but would you do it? (laughs) And the thing that I have found really interesting when asking this question is the number of my friends, especially in recent years, I feel like it's become more common, the number of my friends who have said that they would totally do it, that they would prefer to live in that simulated world where there's no suffering. And often the that that I get is something along the lines of like, well, if I didn't know that it was fake, then what's the difference, right? Like, I mean, if I'm happy and I'm not suffering, then it kind of doesn't matter if it's technically not real. Or they might even go one step further and say, well, if I think it's real, then it kind of is, right? Like, as long as it's actually true to me and I think that it's real, then I don't see any difference between living that life or living in this world. So there are a few really interesting underlying ideas captured in these responses. And they're very common ideas these days. The first is the idea that there isn't really such a thing as objective truth. The truth is whatever I perceive it to be. So something feels real, then it is real. The second is that even if there is such a thing as objective truth, it doesn't really matter, you know, it doesn't matter what it is or whether I'm living in accordance with it or not. Like the truth is this kind of abstract idea outside of me, it doesn't matter. The main thing is whether or not I feel happy. And then thirdly, and I think this one, it really lies at the heart of this response, is this assumption that the truth and happiness are two separate things, right? One does not always lead to the other. So I won't necessarily be happy living the truth. There are times when I would be happier living a lie. Now, in contrast, the church teaches basically the opposite of all these ideas, right? Firstly, she teaches that there is such a thing as objective truth. And then secondly, that the truth matters, right? It matters whether or not my life is in accordance with the truth. And then thirdly, that truth and happiness are actually ultimately inseparable. They're they're bound up with each other and that we will always ultimately be happier if we live in accordance with the truth. Okay, so let's step through each of these three ideas, beginning with the concept of objective truth. Now, we all know that not everything is objective. Some things are subjective and a matter of personal taste. So whether, you know, coriander tastes nice or whether cats are better than dogs. I mean, dogs are better, come on. (laughs) But like, whatever, that's just my truth, you do you. (laughs) But then there are other things that are objectively true or false. So, for instance, the question of whether or not God exists. Like, that's not something where he can exist for me, but not exist for you. No, God either exists or he does not exist. And I'm either right or I'm wrong in my opinion about it. It's called the principle of non-contradiction. Something can't be and also not be at the same time and in the same respect. And then the same thing goes for moral and ethical questions. There are certain things that are objectively, morally Okay, or not okay. And we can see this when we look at laws, right? The entire legal system, the justice system, is built on this idea that there are things that we can point to and say, okay, no, you did the wrong thing and you need to be punished for it. And that's not just my opinion, because if it was just my opinion, then I would have no right to send you to jail. I'd be like, well, I think it's bad that you murdered someone, but you don't think it's bad, so who am I to judge? Okay. Now, there is such a thing as a concept called legal positivism, which is basically just a form of relativism. It's this idea that all morality is socially constructed. So that means that if a government says that something is legal or that it's okay, then that makes it morally okay because, you know, there's no objective right or wrong. So it's not that it's objectively wrong to murder someone. It's just that, you know, as a society, we've all agreed that we don't like murder and we've sort of constructed these values and laws around that. And that's why, you know, We can punish someone for committing murder. And then something that's legal in one country might be illegal in another country, and that's fine. I don't have the right to judge the morality of any other country's laws. Now, Interestingly, this concept of legal positivism became super problematic in the 20th century when it came to the Nuremberg trials, when Nazi soldiers were on trial for committing genocide, because they were basically using legal positivism. They were saying, well, what we did was legal at the time. The government said it was okay. We thought it was okay. Hitler said it was okay. We were just following our own laws. So you have no right now, after the fact, to tell us that we were objectively doing the wrong thing. And of course, the courts had to be like, "Uh, okay, no. (laughs) Genocide, objectively wrong. You can't do that. That's bad. Okay, so there is such a thing as objective truth. Now, let's move on to the idea that this truth matters. Why does it matter if I am living in accordance with truth? Well, point 2467 of the Catechism says man tends by nature toward the truth. In other words, truth is not just like an optional extra. We as human beings are actually built for the truth. And we see this in every human person, right? Even little kids. You know how little kids go through that phase where they're constantly asking why about everything until their parents go slightly mad, right? And then as we get older, we continue to ask questions. And in fact, we ask bigger questions. Things like, why am I here? Why should I go to work every morning? What's the meaning and purpose of my life? Now, these days, that instinct to seek the answers to the big questions might be harder to see in other people because it's so easily kind of suppressed or drowned out by things like, you know, Netflix and social media, right? But even in those situations when someone's instinct for the truth has been kind of deadened, and I've seen this happen before, right? Like someone will just be kind of like toddling along, perfectly content, no big questions, don't care. And then all it takes is one significant life event. Someone dies or gets a divorce or a relationship breaks down and suddenly we're all crying on the bathroom floor asking what the point of everything is. So as human beings, we have this innate capacity and desire to seek truth. And When we aren't living in accordance with the truth, we ultimately can't be truly happy. So, to illustrate this idea, we can think about the movie The Truman Show. Such a good movie. In this movie, it's kind of like that thought experiment that we were talking about, right? Where Truman is living this life that is completely perfect, but... It isn't real. It's all fake. And you can see in him, even before he knows that it's fake, you can see this kind of restlessness. And then as he starts to realize that everything around him is a lie, he's just desperate to get out. And it's really interesting because right at the end, he's actually offered this option to stay in the fake world, even though he knows it's completely fake. And he doesn't take it. He's like, no way. I, I, can't, I can't live this life that I know is a lie, even though it's a completely perfect life and with no suffering. And then this leads us to that third point, which is that truth is bound up with goodness and happiness. We will always be happier when we seek the truth, that deeper knowledge of who I am and why I'm here and how I can be a better person. And why is that? Why is it that the truth will always make me happy? Well, point 2464 of the catechism reminds us that the fullness of truth is God. God is truth itself. So when we seek truth, we're ultimately seeking God. And what do we know about God? Like if we go all the way back to our fourth episode where we talked about what God is like, we said that he is by definition not just truth itself, but also the fullness of all goodness and beauty and love and existence and that all of these things are completely united in him. So when we pursue truth, we are also ultimately pursuing goodness and beauty and love as well. That's why our Lord can say in John chapter 8 that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, I remember hearing that quote when I was a kid and kind of not trusting it. I was like, "Mm, I don't think that that's necessarily true. Seven year old me thinking that I'm smarter than Jesus. But seriously, it does seem like a kind of hyperbolic claim for Jesus to make, right? That the truth will necessarily set you free. I mean, of course sometimes it does but surely not always. You know like what if you commit a crime and then you own up to it and then you go to jail. You know in that instance the truth is doing the literal opposite of setting you free. Or what if you you know went up to your colleague at work and told her that her skirt made her look really frumpy and then she felt terrible. The truth can have terrible consequences and maybe sometimes it's better for us to tell a lie. Well, in response to 7-year-old Caitlin, two things. First of all, In that example with the frumpy skirt, maybe in that instance, the problem isn't so much the truth as the way that it was delivered, right? Our obligation to pursue truth doesn't cancel out our obligation to be kind. No one is suggesting that just because it's true, you get to say whatever you want, right? You get to go up to someone and be like, you look like an idiot, hashtag the truth will set you free. (laughs) I mean, maybe it's true that it's not a very flattering skirt, but- maybe I'm not the person to share that information. Or maybe I have to say it in another way. Or maybe it's more of a situation of personal taste than objective truth, and I actually shouldn't say anything. So, we have to be prudent and delicate and charitable when it comes to sharing the truth. And we'll talk about that more in the next episode. And then secondly, In order to understand what the truth will set you free means, we need to actually clarify what freedom is. What does it actually mean to be set free? No one is suggesting, I mean, unless they're completely insane, That the truth will always make you feel good or that it will always let you do whatever you want. Okay, so by freedom, we don't mean total license or pleasure or, you know, just good vibes. What we mean by freedom is a much deeper and richer and truer sense of peace and joy and real true freedom that we might not immediately feel in the moment, but that ultimately is the result of sincerely pursuing the truth, even if along the way it means that we have to suffer. So if you want to think about this more, we actually have a whole episode on freedom, episode 27. So you can go back and listen to that. But just as an example to illustrate this idea, let's return to that question of, you know, what happens if you own up to a crime and then you go to jail? Are you free then? Let's think about Les Mis, right? The character Jean Valjean. He's this escaped criminal who has been living under another name. He's been on the run for like 10 years. And one day he finds out that someone else has been mistaken for him and has been arrested and is going to be thrown into prison. And he has this moment where he thinks like, oh man, maybe I can just let this happen. Like maybe I can just let them throw this innocent guy into jail and then I'll be free. All my worries will be gone. No one will be looking for me anymore. But he ultimately realizes over the course of one brilliant song (laughs) that if he did that, it would be like a death knell to his soul. He would not be able to live with himself if he lied and let this guy be punished instead of him. Even though he would technically be free, he would be miserable. And it's, paradoxically, through turning himself in, that he's going to find freedom. So, another resource, if you want to think more about what this Christian concept of freedom means, is a book called Interior Freedom by Jacques Philippe. I actually think everyone in the world needs to read that book. It's just incredible. It's a spiritual classic. Okay, now, before we move on, I just want to go back to a point that we were talking about earlier. So, remember how we were saying that God is the truth itself, and when we pursue truth, we pursue God? That can be a really important and really helpful thing to remember when it comes to talking to our friends who don't share our faith. That sometimes before being invited to even consider whether or not God exists, our friends first need to come to terms with the fact that there is such a thing as objective truth. And once they figure that out and start to pursue truth, they'll actually find God. So to illustrate this, an example – I just finished reading a book called Memoirs of a Happy Failure by Alice von Hildebrand. I really recommend it, especially if you work in a university sector. Oh my gosh, it's so real. But one of the things that she talks about is how she taught philosophy at this secular university in the US. And she was a Catholic, but she literally never talked about Catholicism in the classroom. She never once mentioned it to any of her students in class. She just did like the fundamentals of philosophy. But despite that, a whole bunch of her students actually converted to Catholicism. And the reason for that was that as part of these philosophy classes, she taught them about the existence of objective truth. That was it. And then some of those students got really excited by that idea and they started to seek objective truth off their own bat and then lo and behold they eventually arrived at christianity and they'd come back to her and be like i'm converting so if we have friends who don't believe in god Maybe the best place to start, especially now, right? Where so many people don't even believe in truth. We have to begin with that question. Is there such a thing as truth? And if there is, where can we find it? You know, what are the questions that I have and where can I find true answers to those questions? And if we can teach people to love the truth and sincerely seek it, then we kind of don't have to worry, right? We can trust that God is going to get them there eventually. Now, pursuing truth. Super important, but it's not just an intellectual exercise. So point 2468 of the Catechism says that we also need to live the truth, which means living uprightness in human action and speech, guarding against duplicity, dissimulation and hypocrisy. So once we know what the truth is, we actually need to live it. It's no good knowing the catechism off by heart if I'm also like, you know, habitually lying and binge drinking on the weekends and constantly gossiping, right? We actually have to live the truth. So how do we do that? How do we live the truth? Well, the catechism reminds us that the fullness of revealed truth is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. So, point 2466 says, in Jesus Christ, the whole of God's truth has been made manifest. To follow Jesus is to live in the spirit of truth who leads into all the truth. So, you know, that whole like, what would Jesus do thing? I think it was in like the 90s that everyone had those wristbands that said WWJD. I mean, it's a shame that it became kind of a lame cliche because Actually, legit. (laughs) What would Jesus do? Like, that should actually be our motto in life. That's literally what we are called to do as Christians to look at Jesus, to get to know him, and then just do whatever he's doing. That is the best way for us to become holy and to pursue truth and to live the truth. And in order to do that, you know, that's not something that just happens automatically or just through wishful thinking. If we want to get to know Jesus and do what he's doing, we need to invest, right? We need to spend time. Reading the Gospels every day, you know, sitting down for five minutes or two minutes and just contemplating our Lord in the Bible, you know, looking at his face, thinking about what he was doing, what he would have sounded like, what he would have said, spending time with him. It also means putting aside time for prayer, right? Every day, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever we can spare, spending time just sitting with Jesus and getting to know him, you know, sharing things about ourselves, listening to him, getting close to him. It also most importantly means going to mass, right? Because it's in the mass that we actually receive Jesus, body, blood, soul and divinity. What better way to get close to him than to go to mass and to actually receive him. And then lastly, remembering that The church is the mystical body of Christ, right? So, really getting to know church teaching, right? Reading church documents, loving the church more, getting closer to, you know, our Catholic faith. These are all things that will help us to become more and more like Christ. Now, one resource that I really recommend if you want to pray and think about this more is a very famous book called The Imitation of Christ. It's a kind of incredible blueprint for just, I mean, doing what it says on the packet, right? Imitating the life of Christ. So, we need to seek the truth. We need to live the truth. And then thirdly, we also need to bear witness to the truth. And this one can sometimes be the hardest of all. (laughs) You know, it's such a thing these days, this whole attitude of like, you do you, you know, you can believe whatever you want to believe, but just leave me out of it. Right. A friend of mine was telling me recently that in her workplace, they had like, I think it was like a rainbow day or something. And everyone had to wear a rainbow pin. And when they announced it at the staff meeting, her manager was like, look, if you're not on board with this and you don't support it, then that's completely fine, but please keep it to yourself. And that's a really common attitude today, right? Like your faith is fine, but just keep it to yourself. Now, in contrast to this, point 2471 of the catechism says that in situations that require witness to the faith, Christians must profess it without equivocation. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we are Always and in every situation required to speak up. Does it mean that my friend should have gotten up at the staff meeting and been like, well, I'm sorry, everyone, but I'm a Catholic and I don't agree with this and you can't silence me. No, no, it does not mean that. Note that the catechism says in situations that require witness to the faith. So there are going to be some situations where you're not required to say something or when saying something is just going to make the situation worse, or it's not really going to help anyone. Maybe you just really need to pray for that person and then let it go. However, there are other situations where it's a matter of justice that we speak up and say something. So how do we know which is which, right? When should we speak up? Well, point 2488 of the catechism gives us a clue. It says, when it comes to communicating the truth. Everyone must conform his life to the gospel precept of fraternal love. In other words, our actions in these situations should always be guided by love, love of God and love of the other person. So love of God, it's kind of like with anyone that we love, right? Like a family member. There are times when I need to defend them. So if I hear someone speaking badly about my mom, you know, I'm probably going to say something. And the same goes for our faith, right? Like if we hear someone bagging out the church or the Pope or father so-and-so, okay, maybe we need to speak up and be like, oh, hey, you know, I find that a bit offensive or, you know, actually let me explain this, this and this or whatever. So in these situations, we can ask ourselves the question, okay, how would I react if they were talking about my mom or my dad or my siblings, right? That can be a good kind of guiding question. And then love of others as well, because ultimately- our aim should be not just to defend the faith, but also to help others to discover it, right? To bring other people closer to God. So in that workplace situation with the rainbow pin, it's not going to help anyone if you get up and start ranting at everyone. Or if, you know, instead of wearing the pin, you wear a giant cross around your neck to work and a placard that says Jesus died for your sins. Okay. That kind of thing is just going to alienate people. You want to open the door for them to bring them into the faith as well. So maybe in that situation, what you can do is have a private conversation with one of your colleagues who's a little bit more open. Or maybe on the day when someone comes up to you and asks why you're not wearing a pin, instead of just being like, oh I forgot it <laughs> which would be so easy to do. I feel like I'd probably, you know, instinctively say something like that in that situation. But that would be a source of scandal, right? We've got to try to avoid that. Maybe that's an opportunity to really gently explain that this isn't really my thing, you know, for these reasons or you know, this is kind of where I stand. That doesn't mean that I hate anyone, but this is what I believe. So, in these situations, we should always be guided by the question, what is the path of greatest love? Love of God and love of others. Not greatest comfort or greatest obligation or greatest fear. (laughs) Love. How can I love God and love others better in this moment? And we can see really good examples of this in many of the saints, so like St. Thomas More, he's a really good example, but also in the Acts of the Apostles, right? With the Apostles and St. Paul, the way that they stand up for the truth is, you know, really clear and really fearless. So, that might be a good place to go if, if we want to sort of pray about this more. Now, according to point 2473 of the Catechism, the supreme witness to the truth is martyrdom. And that makes sense, right? Like the ultimate way to show that you believe in something is to be willing to die for it. And it's funny because, I mean, I don't know if it's just me, but I've often found myself thinking that martyrdom would be kind of easy. (laughs) Like it's, I mean, it's one thing to have to get out of bed on time in the mornings. That's way too hard. But hey, being fed to the lions for Jesus sake, heck yeah, I could do that. (laughs) I think there's something about the kind of grand gesture-ness of it that makes it seem like a kind of romantic thing that we would really love to imagine ourselves doing. And we, you know, see those paintings of the saints kind of gazing up peacefully into heaven while the flames kind of go around them. But of course, the reality Is that martyrdom is not easy. It's not like a fun, you know, free trip to heaven excursion. And actually, if you look at the lives of the martyrs, one of the things that you'll notice is that often they're already pretty much saints by the time they're martyred. That's actually what gives them the capacity to sacrifice their lives, is that they already have so much fortitude and virtue. They're actually already living all the virtues to a heroic degree. Like, you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find someone who kind of, you know, believed in God, but was kind of really lazy, didn't really do his work very well, wasn't a great friend, didn't do much except going for mass on Sundays, and then one day, you know, the baddies come for him with their guns, and he's suddenly like, Yes, I am ready to give my life for Jesus. I mean, that can happen. God can do anything, His grace is powerful. But if we want to be someone who can give our lives for the truth and for the faith, we have to start by trying to be holy now, growing in virtue now. Now, before we wrap up, let's look at a story of a really great example of a modern-day 20th century martyr who was willing to sacrifice his life for the truth. His name is Blessed Franz Jagerstadter. I am like low key obsessed with Franz Jagerstatter. He is amazing. So he was this guy who lived in Austria during the Second World War, and as a teenager, he was actually like a bit of a ne'er do well. (laughs) Like he rode a motorbike everywhere and regularly got into punch ups. Apparently, he once went to jail because he got into a really bad fight. Um, But then after he got married, he kind of pulled his socks up and started to really take his faith seriously. He started going to daily mass, started doing his work really well, trying to live virtue. He basically just transformed and. People would comment on it they'd be like oh my gosh that franz guy has gotten really holy <laughs> also it's really cute because he and his wife are like super in love with each other and she was one of the like massive influences for him taking his faith more seriously Ugh, it's adorable there's a book of their letters that you should totally read anyway so then world war ii came around and he was called up to fight for the nazis and part of being conscripted was that he had to swear an oath of allegiance to Hitler. And he was like, well, I can't do it because it would be a lie, right? It wouldn't be true. I can't swear allegiance to a guy who's committing genocide. And I certainly can't assist him by joining his army. So he was put in prison and eventually he was executed because of his refusal. And the amazing thing about his story is that absolutely no one at all supported his decision. Except for his wife. I mean, and we think about it, like looking back now, we're like, oh, if I had lived in that time, of course I would have been a conscientious objector. I would have died to not fight with the Nazis. But this is like his entire village. Everyone was Catholic, including like priests and bishops. Everyone around him was telling him to do it. They were like, look, you know, just it doesn't matter. Just swear the oath, join the army for the sake of your family. It's not worth making this huge sacrifice. I mean, it's not even going to make a difference. It's not like Hitler cares. He's not going to even know. So, like, one more soldier in the army is going to change what the Nazis are doing. And Jagerstader was like, I don't care. That's not the point. (laughs) The point is that it's not true and it's not right and I'm not going to go against my conscience. It's just insane. There's this film directed by Terrence Malick called A Hidden Life. It's all about Franz Jagerstader and it's one of my favourite movies of all time. I love it so much. Partly because it just makes me want to, like, go and frolic in the Austrian mountains forever and ever because it is just such a stunningly beautiful film. But also, and more importantly, it's amazing because it really shows you how incredibly difficult that situation was. It really makes you question whether you would have just gone along with it if you'd been in his situation and just joined the Nazi army. But then the other thing that really hit home for me from that movie and also from reading his letters is the realization of what an incredible person he was, That insane amount of virtue and strength and courage that he had. And you look at someone like that and you're like, yes, I want to be like that. I want to love the truth and love goodness and love God that much that I would be willing to die for it. And that is what we are called to. Not to literally die. We don't have to all be martyrs. That's okay. We probably won't. It's fine. But to be able to, to be willing to, to love the truth that deeply that we would die for it. And also to be confident in the fact that even if we had to suffer or even to die for the truth, it would be worth it because the truth is God and anything and everything is worth it if God is our reward. There's a quote from St. Ignatius of Loyola. He says, truth always ends by victory. It is not unassailable, but invincible. The truth is invincible. The truth will set us free. Okay, that is all we have time for today. In our next episode, like, I mean, today we've spent a lot of time being like, "Woo, how great is the truth? But in the next episode, we're going to kind of like flip the switch and look at some sins against the truth. And guys, gird your loins for that one, because there are some juicy ones in there that we may not be expecting, like the fact that gossip in some situations can be a mortal sin. Oh, that one blew my mind. Okay, well, I can't wait. Have a fantastic fortnight and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.